I mean, you about world literature, I was reading, when, when I was 14, I was already reading, you know, Marquez and, you know, reading poetry by, uh, you know, translate, translation, of course, by prominent Latin American poets. We knew all about Cuba. We were watching Nicaragua. This is Jay Devika, a feminist and historian. So, you know, when you had cousins who were visiting from other parts of India, metropolises, the Indian metropolises or from abroad, you never felt second you know, rate to them. You always thought that, okay, big deal. And to cousins from abroad, etc., you actually felt sorry for them because I've had cousins who came from the interior parts of the U.S. who really knew nothing, so dumb, you know. And uh, we used to think, uh, we used to think, Ayyo, pa, ma, 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 Kerala, God's own country. In the 1970s, the government of the time decided to pull Kerala up by its bootstraps. The state had acquired a bad reputation. Political unrest, poor industrialization, government instability and a high population. See Achita Menon, the progressive chief minister, had decided that the state needed to modernize and he instituted policies to reform land, create housing and protect labor. He set up institutions to guide the state's development, institutions that are still standing today. And then a few years later, a study discovered that Kerala had actually managed to do something quite remarkable. It found that the state's population was in fact deeply literate, was eating more nutritious food, living longer, reading newspapers, often more than one a day, and even using telephones to communicate with each other far more than in other Indian states. Remember, this was India in the 1970s. The Kerala model, as it came to be known, showed how a poor Indian state that had lagged behind could achieve high standards of living with low income levels. And it caught the attention of the world. People talked about it, people studied it, people tried to understand how they could replicate it. And that's pretty much the story of Kerala's development that we still hear about today. But there's one big problem with this story. It's terribly out of date. You know, we've been coasting on our, um, on our past uh, achievements. Uh, I do not know whether we have really planned for the future. So we need to do a lot of catching up. Canonized in development theory, Kerala's success loomed so large that it was all people could see. How does a state, overshadowed by its laurels for so many years, Take a good hard look at itself. In 2018, floods devastated Kerala, but it allowed the development model to become a question for debate once again. A new Kerala is emerging from the legacy of its development history and its changing cultural and social landscape. And as messy as it looks right now, we think Kerala is still showing us the way. I'm Radhika Vishwanathan. And I'm Samyukta Varma. And welcome back to the second series of In the Field, our show about India and development. This second series was made possible by our wonderful listeners. And so thank you to all of you. In the Field is as always supported by Rohini Nilekini Philanthropies. If you meet a Malayali anywhere in the world, the first thing they'll ask you is, Where in Kerala are your roots? It's the classic icebreaker that immediately establishes a bond, a bond that stems from a common sense of pride, a pride from knowing that Kerala is different. 
Late last year, Radhika and I traveled to the motherland, our home state, to learn more about the history of Kerala's development model. We'd both studied it, case studies about Kerala required reading and development courses, but we also knew this growing up, hearing about the state's laurels, sometimes being puzzled by our parents' nostalgia, but always feeling a sense of relief that we are, thankfully, Malayalis. We were defined by development. So we were people who were defined by these achievements in social development. And that made us very proud. You know, so you had something to be deeply proud of, something to protect. Jay Devika has written reams on this subject. She works at the Centre for Development Studies in Tiruvarantapuram, in that red brick building with the leafy entrance, famously designed by Laurie Baker. The development story is well known. For decades, Kerala has been the showpiece of international development because the Kerala model with its investments in social development and very high levels of social capital fit the prevailing dominant discourses of the 70s, 80s and 90s. Whether it was social development or human development or participatory development or even the decentralization wave of the late 1990s. Human development as an idea gets reduced to a global index and you're measuring fairly the same things as you did in the 1970s. You come up with this fabulous idea that, okay, that's great on human development as well. And what would happen is that as long as you clung to this methodology, no one would even notice. I mean, I'm, I was one of the early um, writers on the so-called Malayali miracle in the 90s. Wait, who's that? Shashi Tharoor. Do everything, a little bit of everything, as much as I can. But I'm Member of Parliament for Tiruvananthapuram, the capital of Kerala. We'll get back to him. Don't worry. Stick around, Shashi. There's this well-known story about Robin Jeffrey, the academic, that's testament to the story of social reform in Kerala. He was at a restaurant in Trivandrum in 1971 when he overheard a man dismissively call a young waiter to his table. The boy, whom Jeffrey says did not look over 16, furiously came up to his table and told him quite firmly, Ah, no, no. Patti Allah. I'm a human being. I'm not a dog. And this is something that's unthinkable. It was at that time unthinkable anywhere else. So you see, people come here attracted by the political part of the Kerala model. But unfortunately, they end up defending the <laughs> development part, which should have needed more serious critical scrutiny. A century ago, Kerala had one of the most orthodox caste structures, once very pernicious. You had not just untouchability, you had unseeability and, and extremely harsh punishments for any kind of infringement by lower castes. And from there, you had these communities actually come up and decimate the power of the upper caste elites. They also, you know, came together in a, as a collective force whether in caste organizations or in the Communist Party, differently, of course, to put pressure on the state. This second part, the political part of Kerala's story, is equally important because it sets the stage for the development model to prosper. It's the story of public action. If you look at the 1950s, you open the newspapers, you will find page after page full of tiny little news items saying that in Chalakudi, a group of, you know, gathered, they sat on Dharna in front of the, uh, you know, some office, collectorate or something, some office, demanding funds for public library. Then in Mundakayam, people took out a demonstration for a local school. So you'll see this. 
then in somewhere else there is an agitation going on for a hospital so everywhere at the grassroots you had people demanding making demand and uh, turning politics into a vehicle to push those demands to the state part of kerala's exceptionalism was its strong emphasis on welfare and deep sense of public engagement as jayadevika says this history was older and was a legacy of decades of social reform in the early 20th century and it created a feeling of worth within the culture you have this um, i mean strangely contradictory st- slogan that says sarkar anukulyam njangalde avagasham you know anukulyam as a word means uh, you know a gift uh, you know anukulyam exactly translated means a concession but here you have people demanding that as a right it contain a reference to a minimal um, uh, right to land hmm? uh, minimal right to education healthcare and a minimum social security those were the four components of the welfare this was what formed the fundamentals of kerala's social policies and it was built around the male organized sector worker who had dignity was unionized and received the highest minimum wages in the country but over the years out of kerala's development model a new unlikely symbol began to emerge and take hold of people's imaginations for decades the emancipated malayali woman became the much loved embodiment of kerala's greatness and she was frequently conjured even in the foreign press as kerala's development fame grew in a state that had high life expectancy a progressive sex ratio and as many girls in school as boys she was educated she was her own person she was in some ways free of her culture she was the demonstrable empirical reality of the model and this was the ordinary kerala woman but by the neoliberal 90s a new wave struck and two important milestones began to shape development the bold experiment of decentralization happened this was the people's planning campaign which in 1996 passed down nearly 40% of the state's budget to local self governments making women and men active participants in their local planning and then there was kudumbashree the flagship state program for poverty alleviation that employed hundreds and thousands of these ordinary women launched in 1998 women were placed at the heart of a federated model of neighborhood self-help groups and offered microfinance that great buzzword by 2004 the program covered the entire state and the kudumbashree women came to do almost everything from delivering nutrition being healthcare foot soldiers to running kitchens they were also micro entrepreneurs we talked about empowerment of women which for me was a an important thing and i passed got a bit carried away because when i published a column in the hindu um a few years later uh specifically extolling the empowerment of women talking about my own experience with my very independent minded mother and my strong willed grandmother and so on and seeing how women had function i got a massive backlash from kerala women you wrote back to me saying you know you have no idea what it's like to be a woman in kerala the feminists of course since yeah. the 80s have been talking this they've been pointing out the fact that women in kerala have got a raw deal on so many fronts and on top of it the sexism the patriarchy the sexual harassment the impossibility of uh, staying late at work without risking uh, god knows what etc etc all of which i had been unaware of obviously and so i then wrote a corrective column quoting these letters and saying looks like i i may have overstated the case In films produced during the golden age of Malayalam cinema in the 70s and 80s, films that were fated for being realistic, unadorned and true to life, 
also portray the iconic Malayali woman, educated and self-aware as she was, but always pure and self-sacrificing. And who can forget the epic scenes of her life's tribulations that would be accompanied by wailing sad music, representative of her moral triumph, but predictable self-denial. All the women were simple foils to their male counterparts, seen through the male gaze, as they were in the celebrity-driven movies of the 90s. In the end, this fiction was reality. The emancipated Malayali woman was still trapped within patriarchal stereotypes, expected to serve her family and her tradition first. You had an angry young man in the 1970s who had no job, who was educated with no job, who was up against the patriarch, both in the sense of the father as well as the state. Now in Kerala, you have the angry young woman. Here's why things get confusing. Why is Kerala so contradictory when it comes to its women? Kudumbashree is the state's largest network of women. They are powerful. But ask any woman living in Kerala today, and even the Malayalis outside, about expectations. Malayali women are expected to go to school, do well, have jobs, get married, have children, and then forever be devoted to their families. Years of development have not released women from this ideal, and they have not freed women from being seen as economic outflow. You know, every family, there's, it's, there's a post-demographic transition. If there's a girl and a boy, both are sent to school equally, so both are equally individuated. The expectations are not very different from both. But from the girl, there is this additional expectation of being marriageable because that will reduce her da- the dowry demands. So, But whatever the girl does, she still represents the possibility of an outflow of material resources. Mm. And however worthless a boy might be, he represents an inflow. So this is what I call structural worthlessness of the girl. It's hard to imagine that ideas like these exist. It seems almost schizophrenic. They may be wrongly seen as outflows for their family, but they are huge economic contributors to society. The big phenomenon of the Malayali nurse, for example, who as a cadre have hugely contributed to the state's remittances and their families move up the ladder. If you think of a Malayali nurse who takes care of pretty much the whole world, these are women who broke with tradition and left home in search of work as the primary breadwinner in many cases, leaving behind husbands and children. Many of these women chose nursing as a profession not because they felt a calling to care for the sick, but because nursing assured you of a job. And most of their families needed the money. And so, wherever you go, the almost goddess-like status which is given to Kerala nurses is because they chose the job over the family. The Malayali nurse is tenacious. I mean, who can forget the nurses who were airlifted out of Iraq and Kuwait? It's a funny story. When my mother had to have surgery in Rome 25 years ago, she was nervous as hell. It was a foreign country, um, foreign doctors, different language. And the one person who comforted her was the Malayali nurse in her ward, who coincidentally came from the same district as my mother. And get this, she spoke only fluent Italian and Malayalam. No English. Today, Kudumbashree has around 2.5 lakh groups across the state. They played key roles in the response to the 2018 floods. For the Kudumbashree woman, being integrated into the government system gave her an opportunity to become politically activated. Through bylaws, Kudumbashree strengthened its internal democratic structure, introducing office bearers, the rank and file who were elected to work closely in local government bodies. Despite the pressures of external politics, these women have gained power. It is still one move, though, with many more to be played to break through the glass ceiling. 
because it is one thing to empower the female government worker and another to take her to political power. Repressive attitudes towards women also show up in insidious ways, affecting their daily lives. I met Danya, a journalist with a digital media outlet called Arimukam, who's been documenting stories about real women and the issues they face. How old is she? Mm, 60. As a science student, I a biological process. Tanya shows me a recording of a 16-year-old girl who talks about how she learned in biology that menstruation was normal but had to deal with oppressive social taboos at home. Like having to stay unwashed for four days and having to keep herself separate from the rest of her family. She also tells me about the abuse women face in labor wards when giving birth. Yeah, it's very heartbroken. I told experience. So what they told me about their experiences, it's very heartbreaking, their accounts of what they went through. At a time when they were either in the middle of labor or waiting anxiously and excitedly for the birth of their baby, they were subjected to highly insulting physical and verbal abuse. In 2015, there was a whole spate of stories from across the country about the abuse women face in delivery wards of government hospitals. And Kerala doesn't seem to be so exceptional in this regard. Horrifyingly, many of the perpetrators in these stories are female hospital staff. Women were routinely screamed at, hit and abused when they were in pain. Scores of women wrote to Dhanya about their own labor ward stories. But the response to the menstruation stories was lukewarm. And what she found curious is the difference between these women's responses to the state and their responses and reactions to what happens within the family. 2018 seems to have been the year to debate why the Kerala woman is who she is. And every woman held up as an example has been different from the Hadiya case and the Supreme Court judgment that held up her autonomy, to the Women in Cinema Collective and their fight to acknowledge the working conditions and vulnerabilities of women in their industry, to women on both sides of the Shabrimala debate and the ones who participated in the women's wall. In every decade that Kerala was being praised, smugly putting out its social or human development indicators, it was ignoring a chance to look inward. Or is it that in the first story, the development agenda shaped the Kerala woman's identity and today the agency is with her and she's pushing her identity into the larger agenda. On the 8th of August 2018, it rained and it continued to rain. Kerala was used to tropical storms when sheets of rain would fall from the sky for hours and sometimes days on end. But this was different. In 24 hours, the state received over 310 millimeters of rain. People sat at home watching as the shutters of the Great Idiki Dam for so long a tourist spot was opened for the first time in 26 years. There were landslides. Bridges gave way and electricity was cut off. Rivers flowed in spate. All in all, 35 dams were opened in two weeks. Trains were suspended and airports were flooded. The red alert was sounded across the state and over a million people were evacuated to relief camps as the worst flood in 90 years had set in. 
The floods and the destruction it left in its wake created an opening for a much-needed conversation about the choices the state had made. Beneath the sylvan green surface, there were critiques to Kerala's development trajectory that had too long been ignored. The environmental critique called out Kerala's poor land use and planning, rampant deforestation, encroachment and rapid urbanization that had taken place. There had been a reckless reclamation of agricultural land, wetlands and forests, and their transformation for industrial, commercial and residential use. Alongside the sheer lack of state planning was the contribution of millions of Malayali migrants who were sending back so much money. Uh, we have um, a grave over-dependence on remittances. Something like 25% of the state's revenues come from remittances from abroad, and that compares to an all-India figure of 3%. But which went largely to building private assets, homes, hospitals or schools. The average unemployment rate in Kerala is 25% which is quite startling because, of course, it's actually unemployment of the educated and the skilled. The uh, labor, uh, manual labor community has largely migrated to the Gulf or has gone at least temporarily to the Gulf. The uh, manual labor in Kerala is done increasingly by migrant labor from other states. So it's a peculiar kind of unemployment, but it's, it's real. In a state as populous as Kerala, with limited land and employment opportunities, Economics and ecology vie for primacy. Economics usually wins. Kerala was one of the six states that resisted the recommendations of the Gadgil Report in 2011 that called for more stringent protection of the ecologically sensitive Western Ghats. Even its recommendations of its successor, the Kasturi Rangan Report, are still being debated. But the floods brought everything to a head, the ecological repercussions created a space for a state and its society to stop and reorient itself to get off the development wave that had been riding for so long. And it was a moment where people, Malayalis from all over the world, called for restraint to resist the impulse to rebuild frenetically. So my name is Venu, Venu Vasudevan. I am the Principal Secretary for Forests. These days, uh, most of my time is consumed by my new uh, position, which is the Chief Executive Officer for the Rebuild Kerala Initiative. And the state set up the Rebuild Kerala Initiative to build in the longer-term perspective. How do you build back better, right? And and uh, th- there the, the definition sort of widens now, right? So it is not about rebuilding some lost assets, but rebuilding the state and many part, many aspects of, of the of various sectors in a better form, in a better form, improved form. And we're using this as an opportunity to get into systems and get into sectors which perhaps have not been directly and dramatically affected, but certainly have, have long-term repercussions and implications for the state. My own view is that we, we can sustain the Kerala model and its human development indicators if we can boldly embrace some possibilities for change. There are a lot of ideas on the table to boost tourism, for example, or to make agriculture more productive, or to address sanitation in urban areas. But the priority really is to find ways to boost the economy while understanding the fragility of the ecosystem. One is, of course, it sounds like just a cliched buzzword, but it can have real meaning, is to really embark on a serious mission to turn Kerala into a knowledge economy, by which I mean both uh, technology, um, research, IT, 
high tech, including biotech and so on, and um, um, sort of um, education in the general sense of the term. We, we could be the sort of Boston or the Raleigh-Durham Triangle of, uh, of southern India. Uh, if for no other reason, we offer a very pleasant environment for people to come and work. I mean, which scientist wants to sit in Bangalore traffic? Which um, uh, research uh, thinker wants to breathe Delhi's polluted air? And what's interesting is that apart from the usual administrators, this time round, architects, urban planners, social thinkers, disaster management specialists and youth are all pitching in with their ideas. There are new groups forming, many on WhatsApp, who are talking seriously and collaboratively about how to address the state's problems. Groups we spoke to, like Resilient Kerala, which is comprised of Malayalis from all over the world and within Kerala, they initially formed to coordinate rescue and organize shipments of relief, but then turned into a kind of virtual think tank that offers advice, commentary and expertise. People are talking and it feels promising. There's a joke about how you can find Malayalis everywhere. That if you went to the moon, you would find a Malayali chai kada, a tea shop. For years, Kerala's able-bodied men left its shores to work in the Middle East. Who knows when this started happening? Kerala has faced the sea all her life. The Arabs were close brothers whom they traded with, sold boats from Beipur to, and forged close ties with. But by the 1970s, the Great Gulf Migration had begun, feeding the oil boom's need for cheap labor. And since then, professionals and entrepreneurs, men and women, have conquered the world. Malayalis are not afraid of the world, and their history of social mobility has meant that they will go anywhere to make their lives better. My grandfather went to work in Libya in the 80s. My uncle worked in Botswana, of all places. And because of the close connections they've kept with family back home, and not just the remittances they sent back, there has emerged a kind of transnational Malayali identity, which is extremely important both to its growth and to shaping its cultural fabric. Kerala is shaped by national and global forces like no state in India. This is part of its DNA, and it's starting to find a voice. In the last few years, more and more tongue-in-cheek, dry Malayali humour is making its way online, shared on Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp. Dank Memes Malayalam is one of the most popular social media groups online. They have 150,000 followers and counting on Instagram, and 34,000-odd members on Facebook. But there are countless meme pages, even Malayali ones. What sets dank memes Malayalam apart are their incredibly funny, ironic and on-the-point political commentary that almost seems to be adding to the discourse or the identity framing of the Malayali. So whether it's about an errant comment made by a minister, or a growing protest, or a landmark judgment such as the decriminalization of homosexuality, dank memes Malayalam has a viral pop culture-based repost. While dank memes audiences may not be taking to the streets, they're still very clued in about what's going on. Their stage is the digital one. What we do is we try to follow the global trends in Reddit and 4chan. Uh, and what we try to do is we try to mix this global trend with Malayalam pop culture or some element of Malayali, uh, Malayalam to it. The page is run by seven young men, including Varun Menon, a young undergraduate student studying the life sciences. A large part of this Malayalam pop culture that I talked to you about is uh, occupied by Malayalam cinema. Like most of us grew up with 
cult comedy movies from the 90s and so you know all the dialogues from those movies by heart and and there are there are movies that you just can't forget they're always there they're fresh in your head when you mix this particular uh, thing with global trends that people follow you get something special you get you that that's how we make a meme Varun and his crew have their ear to the ground and they are very conscious of both their influence and reach. Yeah, so uh, when we started out, we just wanted to I mean, we we were doing this because we liked doing this. I mean, we liked making memes. Making memes is something that I love and um I mean, it's nice to make people laugh and feel good is what we thought. We just wanted to do this for the sake of entertainment and make people laugh, make people happy. so that's how this thing started off and then we were when we grew in popularity we figured we could do something more with this um it was like we had this large audience in front of us and we figured we could get ideas that really matter and we post a lot of memes commenting on the hypocrisy he means here the hypocrisy in kerala society our memes will have many layers to it as in it will be ironic and we we trust our audience to understand the levels of irony that we go into so whether it was a gender controversy over a movie or movements that are stretching at the social fabric dmm has tried to offer socially relevant commentary wherever they can for example they took on what it meant to be a feminist in kerala so there is this um misconception about what the word feminist means in the malayalam community is what we figured the word feminist itself became a sort of uh, taboo in the uh, audience is what we felt so we wanted to clear that up there is a very healthy discussion in the comment section of the post that i talked to you about and that is interesting to see tank means malayalam has created a space for the modern socially engaged and questioning young person to speak up and share so another question i had is why are there no girls on your group <laughs> uh <laughs> not interested in making memes as much as boys are do you find that online communities tend to be more male in certain you know in certain areas like in um, this humor area or in this kind of you know what what is your perception i mean you have girlfriends right what are they what do they say about <laughs> um so we have um girls who post memes uh but like you said uh, the number is less and i'm not really sure why um there is that is the case but um we try to promote uh, um girl uh, meme makers um maybe it has something to do with how um, uh, facebook gives you this anonymity and you you are not sure who the other person is behind the behind the computer so uh, maybe people maybe girls are more skeptical into getting into contact with guys over the internet in the conversations we had with keralites and malayalis there were these interesting examples that kept coming up about youth related protests or subcultures and they all seemed to be pointing to some kind of cultural change that is underway The 2014 Kiss of Love protest was a young symbolic reaction against rising moral policing. It started with young people kissing and hugging openly in Kochi. The movement was widely supported online with hundreds of thousands of supporters. Another group mentioned were the Freakins, a self-styled tribe of young people who sport flamboyant hairstyles, have their own slang and trace their lineage back to characters in Malayalam films. Or the groups of men online 
that troll and bully prominent female public figures. There are hard questions that need to be asked about what young people in Kerala want. Have boys and men been left out of the development agenda? High unemployment in the state, coupled with the fact that migration, the aspiration of most young men, is on the decline after decades. Some have been writing about how ideas of hypermasculinity have proliferated by the fact that women for years have been pushing back and chipping away at the patriarchal order, with support from the secular state. Is there a way to talk about development without talking about a model? Because when we say we need a model, we never mean just that. We always want a societal ideal. What is it about Kerala that makes it so fascinating? Is it its social reforms so deeply ingrained in its people? Or the progressive path it chose to take that made its society more equal? Or is it its development model? Or is it the Malayali pride that so many want to protect? Or is it its people who believe so strongly that public action can bring change? So who is the very model of the modern Malayali? Thanks to Bala Menon, Bharti Menon, Dr. J. Devika, Devika Radhakrishnan, Danish, Dhanya, Josie Joseph, Mujib, Raghav Sharma, Dr. Shashi Tharoor, Sumesh Mangalasheri, Varun Menon, Dr. V. Venu, Vidya Varma, Yamini and Gayatri Vijayan, and all the folks who are a part of Resilient Kerala. In the Field is a Vaka production, and this episode is hosted and produced by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. Our sound producer is Santosh Nataraja, and soundscaping and sound design by Irvik D'Souza. Our theme song is by Hollis Coates. Show and art design by Bhushan Raj. This episode was mixed and recorded at Third Eye Studios. So please check out our show notes, transcripts, and more information on inthefieldindia.org or reach out to us on social media. We're at In The Field India. In The Field is supported by Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. So until next time, goodbye.